This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. My name's Paul Gadd. I'm a Deputy Director at Innovate UK, uh, and I'll just say a few words and then we'll, we'll crack on with the, the panel session. So firstly, transport is absolutely fundamental uh, to the daily movement, trade, and communication of people, organizations, and goods across the globe. It really delivers what we need for a society, and it delivers for our economy. So the recent value add numbers for transport are well over 100 billion. That's five and a half percent for the UK. And transport also enables other businesses and sectors to be connected and to be competitive. So significant contribution to our economy. But it also accounts for 27% of our greenhouse gas emissions in 2019. And that's something that's simply incompatible with our aspirations for net zero. So we're going to have to change things. Alongside our journey to net zero, we also need to consider other things. We've got to focus on resilience, on new ways of getting about and delivering goods. And they're all placing uh, fresh demands on our transport system. And the importance of transport means the UK needs to respond to those challenges and opportunities represented by those changes. And over the sessions today, we're going to explore some of, those, some of those issues with some really exciting panels and some expert speakers. Starting with this one, decarbonisation is a key focus for the transport industry. As we said, it's critical for our net zero aspirations, but transport really is a complex thing. It's multiple modes, it's multiple sectors, and each with different challenges and different opportunities to decarbonise. For some modes, we're starting to see some consensus in technology and infrastructure choices to deliver net zero. But for others, perhaps the path is slightly less clear, needs more experimentation and more alignment of views. And hopefully, that's what the panel will be discussing now. So the panel session is the future of mobility, decarbonising across transport, and our moderator is the uh, CEO of the Zemo Partnership, Andy Eastlake. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much uh, to Paul Gare from Innovate. And uh, as you mentioned, my name's Andy Eastlake from Zemo Partnership. We work across government and industry to accelerate the shift to zero, low, low and zero emission transport. And I've been doing that for about 20 years. In fact, one of our panelists, uh, Lord Patrick McLaughlin, was actually my boss when he was Secretary of State 10 years ago. We're part funded by the government. I think one of the comments that uh, Matt made just as we were coming in was, we seem to have one of the smallest stages here at uh, Innovation Zero, but we've got the biggest challenge in greenhouse gas. So uh, apologies, it's standing room only. Do please come in and, and uh, move around the back to, so that you can hear if, you, if you're interested. So we've got a really compelling set of uh, speakers throughout the day. So Innovate and the team here at Innovation Zero have put together a great theme on transport. And we're really here to start to introduce that and to start to talk about the big picture. What will zero carbon mobility look like? Uh, and I'm 
very, very pleased to be joined by, by such an august panel to give us a bit of that picture of the future. Later on, you will be able to hear about uh, fleets, about infrastructure, what the vehicles, even what the road infrastructure itself needs to look at. So we want to keep our discussion a little bit higher, a little bit more sort of visionary. Uh, but I think it's really important that not only is transport the biggest greenhouse gas contributor uh, here in the UK at the moment, it's arguably one of the most complex. It's arguably one of the most uh, sort of far-reaching, touching into every aspect of industry and of our lives. Uh, we all move around to some greater or lesser extent. The energy system has to play directly into this, into these moving vehicles. We've got a manufacturing industry around the technologies and the vehicles themselves. So it actually touches into so many different places. Uh, and I think that's why this is one of the most interesting areas for us to grapple with. So I'm joined on the panel by Thomas Abelman, uh, who's Director of Strategy and Innovation for Transport for London. Transport for London, as many of you will know, has been seen as one of the great innovators and leaders in some of the city transport activities. So I'm really pleased that Thomas has been able to join us. As I mentioned earlier, Lord Patrick McLaughlin, previously Secretary of State for Transport, now Chairman of Transport for the North. So one of the bigger, biggest areas that we need to think about is how we get the, the, the non-city centre, if you like, the rural and the intra-urban sort of transport to work and be decarbonised in the same way that we can see some of the, the vision for cities. Uh, and then I'm also very pleased to welcome uh, Matt Eastwood, who's Head of Innovation and Supply Chain for Transport Scotland. So what we do have, I would say, and, and Matt might agree with me, we have a healthy competition between our nations here within the UK about who can actually move and innovate far, further and faster. And that, as long as it remains healthy, uh, is always good to see. So Scotland have got some really, really good ambitions and some really clear direction. And Matt, I know, covers a lot of that space. And then last but certainly not, uh, not least is uh, Claire Spooner, Deputy Challenge Director for Faraday Battery Challenge. And Claire, I know, brings a lot of energy to the discussion, not only storing it up in the way that a battery does, but actually give, delivering it very, very effectively. So Claire will be able to give us a little bit of an insight into some of the, the technologies that are really going to enable this long-term vision. So I would like to start by giving each of my panellists just a, a few minutes to kind of lay out their vision. The, 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 if you like, the exam question is, what will zero carbon mobility look like? And if we look into the future, if we're successful in the 2040s and we've got a zero carbon mobility system, what would that look like to you, Tom, from a city perspective? What would success be? Yeah, sure. It's one of those challenges because there's a huge amount of what we would call innovation, um, doing things fundamentally differently to what we do now. But there's also an awful lot of progressive change, accelerating trends that we've already seen, but needing to be accelerated dramatically. You know, we, we talked earlier about the fact we have the biggest challenge in the smallest room. Um, you know, transport's the area that has not seen any reduction in carbon emissions since the 90s. And yet it's not that there haven't been huge improvements and in innovations, emission standards, vehicles have transformed in that time. But transport is a fundamental driver of economic growth and we simply do more of it. So every time we save some carbon, we recycle it back into more activity. And kind of that's a good thing, but it means we've got to make some fundamental changes to get us beyond that dynamic. So we clearly need to literally decarbonize. And that's where a huge amount of the innovation comes in. You know, within London, we are about to launch our 1,000 zero emission bus, but actually that's still only a relatively small proportion of the largest bus fleet in Europe. We've already got the largest zero emission bus fleet in Europe. 
all kinds of innovation required there. Longer routes are more difficult than shorter routes. Can you repurpose buses so that we don't have to end up embedding a whole load of carbon in new build? Questions we simply don't know the answer to then. We've obviously got to decarbonize um, automotive and you know there's there's national work being done there. In London, we've got to make sure that we provide sufficient charging infrastructure for zero emission vehicles. But zero emission vehicles are not the only answer to decarbonisation. Almost one of my biggest worries is that because there's such a big job to do to decarbonise the vehicle estate, we think that's all that has to be done. And what also has to be done is that we need to fundamentally change elements of the way the city works in order to make sure that use of transport is driven by the lowest emission modes because automotive, even zero emission automotive, embeds a huge amount of carbon. So you know, we need to achieve more people using public transport, more people walking and cycling, more people using micromobility. That means that streets need to be different. And it also means that streets need to be more carbon resilient. So we have this kind of huge triangular challenge of trying to ensure that we may have more people traveling, which inevitably means more activity equals more carbon in one form or another, because that's essential to London's future growth and prosperity. We need a more resilient city. So that means you know, more urban drainage schemes, streets redesigned, re-engineered, and elements of our existing transport networks as well. And we need a decarbonized network, which is our own infrastructure, but also the way people move around the city. That latter point is a, a lot of that is accelerating trends that we've already seen. Uh, up until um, the pandemic, the, the TfL public transport network had seen unprecedented growth and is recovering ahead of you know, many comparable networks, certainly in English-speaking countries, more aligned with um, recovery in, in Europe. And we need to continue to develop innovations that make transport more and more attractive. You know, contactless payments was the, the great innovation of the last decade within the, the public transport network. What's the one of the next decade? We need to develop further and then integrate micromobility so that, that, so that we have you know, proper seamless integrated transport of low carbon emission modes. And it's great to hear that the government wants to legislate to enable micromobility modes to become properly recognised, their own vehicle class properly regulated. And we would encourage that to happen as quickly as possible. And then we need to continue the process of changing our streets to become healthier streets, more sustainable streets and streets that prioritise walking and cycling. And, it, and we've got to do all of that. And that's why this is so critical, because it, we can get there, but it requires every single element. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Tom. Tom touched there on things like micromobility and, and mass transit. Obviously, outside of the big cities, particularly London, road transport, the distances and the volume of road transport is just increasing and increasing. Van, van activity has increased at something like 20% in the last, uh, last few years. And congestion charges and, and zones within London have kept that probably manageable within London. But when we look outside of London, it becomes, I think, a, an even more challenging prospect in some respects. So the, the challenge for the, the sub-regional transport bodies, the STBs, such as Transport for the North, I think is slightly different than that facing London. So, Patrick, what do you think success would look like in the Transport for the North in the future? Well, Andy, thank you very much. I partly agree with what you've just said, but I also think that this is something which is just across the whole nation. And whether you're in a very rural area in Cumbria or actually in a city, some of the basics will remain the same. And I think over the next 20 years, we are going to see a change in transport which basically will be unrecognizable 
to a transport system that was there when I was first appointed to the Department of Transport as a junior minister back in 1989. So the, the points that are going to be so important, as was said earlier on, you know, if transport stops, basically everybody stops. We had the horrendous period during the lockdown when people weren't able to get out see families weren't they weren't able to get the kind of social uh, interchange that they wanted and the effects that that had on society so i think we've got to accept just how important transport is overall to the nation and how sometimes it takes a long time to plan for some of the big infrastructure changes perhaps the best example is the tremendous uh, achievement of the elizabeth line now in london a line that, okay, was three years late. Well, actually, it wasn't three years late. Truth was, it was 30 years late because <laughs> it was first announced in 1989 by Cecil Parkinson when I was at the Department of Transport as the junior minister. And, and so part of the answer has to be what we do for infrastructure development long term. And some of those challenges, how do we get the modal shift? How do we enable people to get the confidence uh, of uh, better public transport and more reliable public transport. And then, you know, when I, as you, you said, Andy, it's just over 10 years ago that I was made Secretary of State for Transport. And uh, in those days, yes, electrical, electric vehicles were talked about. Yes, we had some rolling out of, of charging, but it wasn't fast enough. And whenever I was doing interviews on local radio stations, it was always a bit of mocking about how poorly we're doing and whether we're doing it fast enough. But there had to be confidence. There's got to be confidence with the traveling public. So part of that is, is building up confidence. It's reassuring people. We're always going to get the sort of uh, the stories about how uh, charging has failed or they've not been, somebody's not being able to get onto a charger. And until we can get away from those kind of stories, there will always be that skepticism as to whether whether it's worth making that change, whether it's worth making that switch. But we're going to have to. Uh, we we need to because it's it's not just good for the environment. It's actually better, I think, overall for the country and the economy as well. So those, I think, are the big uh, challenges, and they're challenges right across the piece. They're challenges whether you live in a city or whether you live in a rural district or a rural county. Confidence is, uh, I, I think there is more confidence now around. People are understanding it better. The challenge is to make sure that we've got the right amount of energy and charging pots. And that's something which organizations like the STBs, in my case, Transport for the North, you know, Transport for the North covers basically from Sheffield, Cheshire, up to the Scottish border. So a huge area, very diverse. Some of the major cities outside London, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, Newcastle, and I better not leave out Hull because I get in trouble if I do, but just right across uh, the whole piece. And uh, we are just today, as it happens, going out to a consultation on our new strategic transport plan, which talks about how we do that, encourage that shift, that modal shift, which is going to be so important. Absolutely. I think very well said. Just before I move on to Matt, uh, just a reminder of Slido. So if you want to uh, raise a question with any of our panel members a little bit later on, please uh, log on to Slido. You've got the QR code there. There's a couple of questions coming already. Thank you very much indeed. And we will get 
round to those, but uh, please do uh, log into that. So, Matt, we've talked a little bit about cities, we've talked a bit about the rural. There are other aspects that we really need to think about much more broadly. And I think, uh, you know, from your position within Transport Scotland, I think you've got a really good perspective on some of those other areas. Yeah, thank you, Andy. So, so I think you're, the question is, what does uh, zero carbon mobility look like? And I think uh, one of the thing, I want to make a couple of really important points. The first is that uh, zero carbon mobility allows us to unlock wider societal benefits. Uh, decarbonizing transport is also about decarbonizing an industry and a supply chain that supports transport. And that creates a route for uh, economic opportunity. It creates a route for creating new green jobs and also a just transition to uh, net zero. A UN Economic Commission report estimated that around 10 million jobs could be created across the world by decarbonizing uh, transport. And by addressing embedded carbon, we can unlock societal benefits by maximizing economic opportunities to onshore the production of zero emission vehicles and their components and systems. And by incorporating circular economy principles, both into the design and also production of both vehicles and components and systems, we can create economic opportunities throughout the life cycle of products. I'll give you an example of that. And there, there's obviously a very important focus on uh, establishing battery manufacturing in the UK. And you may have picked up on an announcement just yesterday. But to create a sustainable circular economy for batteries, we need to consider economic opportunities throughout the life cycle of batteries. Batteries play a cr critical role, not just in decarbonizing transport, but also in decarbonizing the energy system as well. Um, and so just consider the huge number of batteries that are going to be deployed, that are being deployed, and that will be deployed uh, throughout the UK to decarbonize transport and also energy as well. There's significant opportunity to capture that the value of those products wherever they're manufactured and to reuse, remanufacture, and recycle those products. So, for example, transport makes up to 75% of the cost of recycling batteries, and that creates a huge driver to reuse, remanufacture, and recycle those batteries, whether they were manufactured in China, the United States, Europe, or here in the UK, locally in the UK. So I think it's a really important example of how the decarbonization of transport can unlock wider societal benefits and create economic opportunities for the UK. I think the, the second point I'd like to make is that as we've, as we've achieved in our vision of the future, we've, uh, we've realized a zero carbon mobility. One of the things that we've done is that we've paid much greater attention to transport's role within a decarbonized energy system as well. So obviously transport makes a significant contribution to fossil fuels and decarbonizing the transport sector creates opportunities for transport to play a different role within a decarbonized energy system, what would likely be a much more complex energy system as well. And as part of this new role, transport can play, transport can come an asset supporting the, the decarbonized uh, energy system. And one of the ways it can do that is obviously through the flexible use of vehicle to grid and through the reuse of uh, batteries as well. And I think if, if that's the future, there's a number of things we've done in order to get there. So one of them is that we've aggregated public sector demand, both to drive down the cost of decarbonized uh, vehicles used across the public sector, but also critically to demonstrate the business case for private sector investment in refueling and recharging infrastructure to, to support uh, zero emission vehicles. And that's, that's allowed both 
public sector fleets to decarbonize, but also private sector fleets as well, so that we can achieve the vision of the future. The other one is that use transport role, transport's role within a decarbonized energy system to offset the higher cost of zero emission vehicles. One of the ways we've done that is through new models of finance. So for example, leasing batteries in heavy duty vehicles, the large batteries that would go into large heavy duty vehicles, models of leasing those batteries so that uh, we can reduce the upfront cost of those vehicles and allow those batteries to have a, a second life in battery storage. In, in energy storage. And the other one is that we've created opportunities for new business models as well. So for example, today airport parking is about charging you for storing your car. And in the future, it may be about using your car to store energy uh, during the off-peak periods in order to feed it back to the grid during peak periods. So there's a number of ways that we've, we've to achieve this vision of zero emission mobility, we've maximized the opportunities to, uh, to ensure that uh, we've derived value for society from uh, zero emission transport. Absolutely, thank you very much indeed. Tom, please chip in, yeah. I think Matt touched on so many different areas there and you know, one of the key things is the complexity really breeds opportunity for innovation. So innovation in finance, innovation in technology, innovation in behavior and, and, uh, and all of these things. One of the areas that we've probably innovated more than anywhere else is in batteries, so Claire, Batteries, one of the technologies, one, one of the technologies, but a key one. But what are the other, or what are those areas that you really see being critical to that long-term vision? What I'd like to say is that I think if we take a step back and say, well, why do people travel in the first place? Because as soon as you understand why people travel, you can actually start to unpack what their needs are and you can understand what innovations are required. So generally, I'd say people travel to access about four things, and that's leisure services, employment, education, and health services. So that does partly play into how do you design your cities to make sure that you're actually able to achieve those kind of connections. Because what you ultimately want in any transport system and mobility is seamless choice to get you to your destination, to get you to the reason that you're traveling. There's been some amazing work done between the Oxford and Cambridge Arc, really mapping those user journeys out. Why are people traveling between those, those kind of routes? And that's enabled them to think, well, okay, we need a cycle route, we need to, to, to put a new railway back into the system back, um, replacing um, a beachings line, things like that. So they've taken a different approach. But UKRI has looked at this, and we came up with something about two years ago with Paul in the corner, and that was Transport Vision 2050, what the transport system would look like in 2050. And this is being currently being refreshed. But it touched on about six different things, and those are really important things. So it touched on what our infrastructure would look like, and uh, happily today we are actually investing in areas like that through the uh, UKRI Challenge Fund, uh, Transforming Construction, and that's supporting a wealth of uh, construction-related challenges, sorry, Transforming Foundation Industries. That's looking at a number of different challenges that we face. And we've also managed to support this area through, I think it's uh, the Graphene Institute. So uh, the Graphene Institute, the Geek, um, up in Manchester, they're actually doing some amazing work picking uh, graphene into concrete. So you use less concrete, and when you use less concrete, but it's still the same strength, you suddenly enable different infrastructure, different hubs, different terminals to be built and enable people to access those services in an appropriate way. We also think that safety is a key element. So when you're traveling, it's making sure that the new vehicles that we travel by, whether it's micro-mobility or indeed uh, your future cars, your trains, is how do, do we ensure that they're still safe? 
how do we ensure that the, that the regulations support that safety of people traveling? We wouldn't want to cause unintended consequences by having you know, the wrong kind of uh, solutions and the wrong kind of technological development in that space. So all of our challenges do have an element of where we look at safety as part, of, part and parcel of our activity. On top of that, another area that we are considering is key is new business models. And again, this is built part and parcel into all of our activities that we undertake. And those new business models from a transportation perspective are genuinely fascinating. We might not own cars in 2050, we might just rent them for the couple of hours we need them. Currently, your car sits idle, doing nothing for 95% of the time. It just sits on a driveway, sits in a car park, and it's not delivering any benefit. But if we could use the battery that has been charged overnight and then use that battery to power the grid during the day, well, it gives us suddenly a different energy dynamic, a different flexibility to how we're approaching our, you know, uh, our energy system, how we're approaching utilizing the resources we already have. If we built the car, how do we make sure it's used as much as possible? So there's lots of different potential with those business models. Another area, of course, the one that's closest to my heart is battery development. So uh, I work on the Faraday Battery Challenge. And as part of that challenge, we're obviously developing uh, batteries. And it's a fascinating challenge. We're looking at the fundamental electrochemistries at one end of the scale. And all the way at the other end, we've built a gigafactory. It's a trial gigafactory. It allow allows innovators to come in, businesses to come in and test whether they've got their chemistries right, whether they've got their systems right, whether they can tweak it with uh, some different modeling to make sure that their systems run efficiently. And then that will go into cars, that will go into different micromobility solutions. And that is truly innovative. We, there's nothing like this facility uh, elsewhere in the world right now. We're about three years ahead of our European competitors on that. Genuinely innovative scale-up facility that will enable people to, to innovate in a truly effective way. But beyond the wonderful Faraday Battery Challenge, there's also driving the electric revolution, which looks at power electronics, motors and drives. That again is taking, well, what happens once you've got your battery EV? How can we make the other elements work effectively? What, what does my magnets look like? Where do I get my rare earth metals? And as Matt said, we completely are looking at the supply chain. We need the critical minerals for batteries, power electric motors and drives, all the way up to make sure that we can recycle them at the end. How do you tear them apart? How do you put them apart? How do you make sure they have second use if appropriate? And then lastly, because it's actually sad to say it's not just about road transport, it's not just about surface transport. UKRI also supports um, the UKRI Challenge Fund uh, for Future Flight. We're looking amazingly, and honestly, the information about it is just staggering. They're, they're talking about developing for 2050 different carriers for people. So it's effectively a bus that flies, but looks far, far nicer than the kind of 1970s bus image you'll have in your head. But it would take small, uh, small groups of people from one location to another. So what I would say is there are massive challenges to getting us to 2050, but we're looking at them today. And I think that's the crucial bit. We know that vehicles last such a long time. A plane's about 50 years, well, 35 years. A ship is about something like 80 years, 65 to 80 years for, for one of your sh shipping freights. And again, we're looking at that through the UK shore work that we undertake with the Department of Transport. So there's a lot of momentum, but there's a lot of work to be done to get us to 2050. And we are taking it seriously. And we're looking at those kind of how to deliver those interim uh, goals and those interim targets as part of that. Brilliant. Thank you, Claire. I, th I think... Really interesting point, this uh, incompatibility in the, the timelines that we look at. As you said, so, you know, some of the infrastructure, some of the ships and the big is, is 50 plus years. 
you know, the infrastructure for the grid, the energy system, is that sort of scale. One of the areas that we can move very quickly, and I'm going to come to one of the questions here, and probably uh, drop it to Tom and Patrick initially, is actually behaviour. Behaviour is one of the fastest things that we can look at. So, you know, are there some examples of best practice in terms of changing behaviour that can really help take us towards zero carbon mobility and in, in people embracing this, uh, this model? Tom, your side. I, I love the idea that behaviour is one of the easiest and quickest things to change. <laughs> uh, the, um, but I, but I, I think it comes back to the point I said earlier about, about how we design cities because you know people will make decisions based on what works for their lives getting things done like we said earlier you know transport's about getting people to school to work to hospital to leisure and so we've got to make sure that it's easy and simple for them to do so if the way that is easy and simple to do so is one that minimizes carbon emissions then that will happen um i actually live in walthamstow which was the first low traffic neighborhood um first source of all that controversy um but actually, it's one of the really simple things. It's like there's a lot of flower beds, um, so it looks really nice. Um, the paving, where there is paving, is nice. And because there's flower beds, the drainage is sustainable. But you know, the bus still goes through, but it's slightly, it's slightly harder to drive. You go round as opposed to through. Um, and it just means that it's an area that embeds more carbon-friendly behaviours. And of course, Walthamstow has fantastic public transport. It's got the Victoria Line. It's got the overground. Um, and so it's about creating those environments. You know, starting out to change behaviour is probably slightly dangerous, but starting out to create the environment in which people naturally want to make decisions that are self-interested decisions that work for sustainability, um, that, that's wholly achievable. Thank you, Tom. So, Patrick, from your side, I'm, I'm quite interested in the, perhaps the, the freight and the, if you like, the commercial sector and how we change some of their thinking, because there are they're quite a challenging space for us to, uh, to address. Well, if I can just first add on as well to what Tom was just saying, because one of the ways you can bring in change is by bringing fiscal measures which encourage it. And, and that is very, very effective. I mean, I've sort of been around long enough to remember when we were trying to get people to change to unleaded petrol. And actually, just by doing a fiscal change had a, a quite a big revolutionary knock-on effect as to how you do that. So fiscal... Fiscal change is, is one area. Uh, what you have to do on fiscal change, though, is make sure you don't uh, end up with a position of social exclusion and how you uh, sort of give the opportunities to everybody. There are ways of uh, driving behavioural change, which makes people very uh, content to do that. As far as uh, one, of the, one of the challenges is, is basically making it easier uh, for companies and organizations to do the, the switch over. So capacity. Capacity, you know, we keep talking about wanting more freight on our railways. One of the things that stops more, has a cap on more freight on our railways, is the capacity of our railways, of our railway network. And that's why something like HS2, controversial, yes, but actually I think in the long term, very, very important to build capacity. Because HS2 isn't about getting to Birmingham 10 minutes faster or Manchester 35 minutes faster. It's actually what you do to the whole of the rest of the network in making it much more available for other services to take place. So it is sometimes doing, and I, I think uh, what Claire was saying about the age of some of our infrastructure and how long it's allowed for is absolutely uh, 
absolutely true and uh, critical. And, and one of my frustrations when I was doing the transport job was the wonderful Treasury Green Book, which said you had to have a payback in 30 years. Well, if it took you 22 years to build something, it was quite difficult to get the payback in 30 years when the project was going to be around for 100 years. So, um, you know, some of those uh, particular issues, I think, are incredibly important for how we plan longer term. And also, yes, plan longer term, but some of the things that Claire was saying about the way in which technology is moving forward is breathtaking. So some of it is planning a long time ahead, but it's also then being able to adapt to new information, new technologies, uh, and making sure the systems we put up are adaptable to it. And, and the whole change that, you know, the pandemic in certain ways brought some changes that we are not going to go back on. We're going to see more online shop. Uh, and then how do you uh, distribute uh, that, those, uh, that, 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 that shopping is going to be important and what timing you do that. Absolutely. No, I think I think that's that's very well said. And you bring me into uh, yeah. Well, actually, Matt, I was going to come to you if, if you can pick up on that. But also, one of the things that Patrick mentioned, which he actually picks up on a question here, is how can we work in partnership across all of these diverse industries, diverse nations, regions, to actually maximise the benefits overall? But uh, yeah, please pick, pick up on the, the specific. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think a point has already been made is that transport is derived demand. And I think we've seen there's very strong body of evidence of the benefits of concepts like 20 minute neighborhoods in Paris, the Barcelona superblock concept. And one of the things we need to do in, uh, in the UK is look at the role in the planning system, uh, the role of the planning system in developing derived demand, looking at uh, whether the planning system always uh, serves transport decarbonisation in the best possible way by allowing developments to take place that, uh, that create demand. Uh, and I think we need to look at how we can uh, redesign some of our towns and cities around 20-minute uh, neighbourhood concepts that have been shown to improve quality of life and improve uh, health and well-being and can also enable people to uh, live locally and live well without necessarily having to travel across the city to access uh, goods, uh, services, education and employment. Um, and one of the challenges that we have, which we'll maybe come on to later, is 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 that infrastructure. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, and, and I think that that point about planning, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've been working on within uh, the the partnership is getting all of the planning aspects to try and coalesce the the actual uh, the infrastructure, the energy, and the buildings all to coalesce around the same sort of vision of the future and and thinking about that. In, in a joined up way we, we talk about joined up we, we we all sit here and talk about joined up in everything whether it's joined up government joined up uh, regions but actually it really does matter in in transport again i'm picking up the questions it's an anonymous question but i'll, I'll come to you claire if i can because i think you can comment on this but the question is with 2030 grid a typical bev is 60 percent of the co2 footprint of an ice and what role do transport authorities have to drive decarbonisation of the supply chain well, i think the first thing and the first point i'd like to make is we've got to do a bit of myth busting because a BEV is not 60% of an ICE vehicle. It's about 30% to start with. So we need to get the right messages out there as part of it. But this whole principle, zero emission vehicles in current government speak are zero tailpipe emission yes. vehicles. What else have we got to think about here? If you're looking at the, the kind of whole system, we obviously need to know about the infrastructures in place to make sure people can charge. And so there are a couple of difficulties there. Right now, it's 
not really a just and fair transition, I would say. People who can afford EVs generally have driveways and people who maybe, and so they can charge and that's wonderful. But then if we're trying to cascade that benefit all the way down to every sector of society, they maybe don't have a driveway. People in cities don't have driveways very often. So where do they charge? And that's a big problem. As soon as, and there was a fascinating series of tweets that, and I can't remember the chap who put it up, but it was Chris Stark, the, the CEO of the Committee on Climate Change, put it up this week. I think it was um, on Tuesday. And he showed a thread to it. And it was where actually in London, people had chosen within their, their boroughs to cite their electric vehicle chargers. Now, best practice is do not cite your electric vehicle charger um, on the high street, do not cite it on the pavement. And that's where sadly, most of the electric charges are being placed. So you're immediately causing a little bit of a clash between the users of pavement, so pedestrians and cyclists are losing their space for the benefit of cars. Now, I'm like, I love my car, don't get me wrong. I absolutely am supportive of cars, but there does have to be something that we think about, about how we actually want people, humans uh, to interact with the vehicles. And actually in Paris, they, you know, they do have it as their kind of main priority to build all of their electric vehicle chargers on the street, on the street. So they lose parking spaces, but then they don't impede pedestrians. And I think that's actually one of the biggest challenges we're gonna face is actually just knowing one, how to get the grid to be efficient and working and make sure that there is access for people to charge their electric vehicle whenever they need it. But two, to make sure that we're not taking away from the opportunities around active travel while you're also providing those kind of technological provisions to enable people to travel in a, a different modality. Because um, I think that's very important to be able to do. Brilliant. Thank you, Claire. So uh, I, I know we're, we're sort of getting towards the end of the session, but one of the questions that came up, uh, and I think it's an interesting one, is if we could make one innovation now in zero carbon mobility, and I can see Patrick thinking, so I'll come to you later on, Patrick, don't worry, that you think could make a really big difference now, what might that be? What would be the one wish that actually, if we could do that, Thomas, shall I start with you? Well, I'm going to say probably what you either very much expect me to say or not, I'm not sure which, but from Transport for London's perspective, the most important thing is that we have a properly well-funded, forward-looking, integrated transport network. And Transport for London currently has capital funding for the end of this year. So I would argue for a long-term funding deal for London so we can actually properly think these things through and implement them and get them done. And, and, and a long-term funding deal is, is an innovation, is it? You've never had one of those before, I guess. Well, it's an innovation, it's an innovation now because we haven't had one for quite a number of years. Um, so it, 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 it feels comparatively new compared to where we've been for the last four years. But actually, this, this is a critical time and we really do need to be able to be thinking long term. Because um, you know, we, we can't, we, we, you know, as you know, since the pandemic, we've been on a series of very short term capital funding deals. And yet we're, we're all talking here about what 2030 looks like, 2040 looks like, 2050 what looks like. And we, we, we want to get into this and we need to and we need to be able to plan. I, I think that point about timing and the difference of timing of different elements of this, you know, the technology, the digital move so quickly uh, and, and all of these tend to transcend political uh, uh, timeframes as well. So Patrick, what about you? If there was one innovation that you'd like to see come in quickly? I, I, I think one of the things that made a fantastic difference in London was the Oyster Card and to have something like that for the rest of the country that is easily transferable uh, across the whole country so that you don't have to look at a different charging place and I think the other thing I probably want one app for car parks rather than uh, all the different ones 
you know, something really radical and uh, sort of exciting like that to uh, just make life a bit more straightforward and simple. I, I, someone will correct me, but I think I was told somewhere that the Oyster card actually begat Chip and Pin. I think it actually did become Chip and Pin and became yes, that yes. universal yes, yeah, yes, payment yes, system. Yes. So your, your wish might come true on parking. You never well, know, Patrick. It, well. might, it might have. Matt, how about from your side? I think from my side, less about a specific piece of technology and more about how we fund uh, the decarbonisation of transport. Fundamentally, there's not enough money in the public sector to address the challenge of decarbonisation. We have to crowd in private investment. We have to create opportunities for private investment to help uh, us uh, decarbonise. And we have to use the limited public sector funding that we do have to create uh, an environment that um, is positive uh, in, in attracting that private sector investment. So we can look at new models of financing uh, zero emission vehicles in public sector fleets, but also in private sector fleets as well. New models of ownership that allow us to decarbonize those fleets uh, more quickly. And I think that's key at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you, Matt. Claire? I'm probably coming at it from a slightly different angle. I think uh, DEFRA a few years back came up with a 25-year environment plan. So maybe a 25-year transport plan which would kind of transport strategy. I know we've got the, the decarbonizing transport plan to 2030, but I'd like to see it to 2050, partly to give security to investors to make good decisions. And then the long-term investments that we need across new innovations can be supported because people know the direction of travel, the rough direction of travel, but also it would allow local authorities maybe to be able to exert more funding for specific transportation hubs. So I think that kind of long-term vision and I know Innovate UK did a cracking job on their transport vision 20, 2050, because we just need to set a line in the sand and say, this is what we think it would look like to help provide that security, that certainty moving forward. So that's probably why I would wish. I think having a plan and then sticking to it yeah. with the flexibility to respond to it's the changes. It's flexibility, yes. We, we do have a habit of creating a new plan each time we, uh, we, we get a new uh, initiative from you, somewhere. Yeah, so. you can end up with technological lock-in. We did that, and I believe, in about 1830 with the railways, and we went for that wrong-size railway grid, uh, wrong-size <laughs> track, and that, that has been a bane of our lives ever since. So, yeah, let's, let's make sure there's flexibility in it. That's going to be a tricky one. We've got the last, last couple of minutes, so really a little bit of a, an opportunity to, to highlight any other aspects that the, uh, the panel would like to make. But I guess one question that I'd like to ask is... is uh, because it's all about innovation and actually we want to be looking beyond our own boundaries is there an example that you wish you know you'd thought of that you can see that's actually something that uh, that's that's a, that's a really bold innovation in a sector that that uh, would be you know we should maybe maybe looking internationally at someone that you or some somewhere that you admire in terms of the way they've moved things forward Shall I start with you, Matt? I'll, I'll, I'll start in the middle. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no you look, problem. You look most confident to have an answer. So. Well, um, I guess, I, I, I guess, I guess the uh, innovation I think that's most important, but it's more about the uh, is more an economic concept. I would say uh, the mission-based approach um, uh, espoused by the economist uh, Mariana Mazzucato, a very influential economist, about how we how we use the limited public sector funding we do have to create opportunities to harness innovation in business and also in our world-class universities and research institutes. That's an approach that was taken to land a man on the moon, and the benefits of that, the technological innovative benefits, lasted well beyond landing a man on the moon, and, and that's how we need to think about uh, we, how we use the limited funding that we do have 
to enable innovation in the private sector and also in our world-class academic institutions as well. So we're going to do zero carbon mobility, not because it's easy. That's, that's what you're saying, I think. Yeah. Tom? So I'm going to talk about Bitcoin, um, not because I think it's an innovation that we should replicate, but we should replicate the absolute unquestioning confidence of the proponents of Bitcoin. Um, they've invented something that seems to be fundamentally useless and sucks up vast amounts of carbon um, that could be better deployed as a carbon budget elsewhere with total certainty that they're right. And those of us in this room, in the world of mobility, who are providing connect connectivity, social purpose, social connections, reducing loneliness, and all of the time got probably the biggest single opportunity to do so while reducing carbon. So let's harness some of their confidence in telling our story um, to make sure we actually achieve this. Rampant confidence. I think that's, that's definitely something we should have a little bit more. Patrick, is there something that you can highlight there that in the... Uh... Well, I suppose what I, what I hold a lot of confidence for the future in is actually the growth of regional mayors that are having much more of a direct impact on their communities and surrounding areas. And uh, that was something which was uh, sort of pioneered by Michael Hesseltine and uh, seeing that take, taking that forward. I think could have a very, very important impact on the uh, transport networks in our important area, uh, regions. Final word to you, Claire. And because it's the final word, I'm going to be selfish and have two answers. Um, the first one I would say is batteries. Obviously, they're amazing. And genuinely, the work we're undertaking is truly groundbreaking. And it really is providing some really strong foundations for the future of the battery industry in the UK to make sure we can move on to transportation. But the other innovation uh, I heard, which I really just like the sound of, so it's Professor Greg Marston out of the University of Leeds. And he developed, in my world, we work in these things called technology readiness levels, you know. Um, how, how mature is the, is the technology to be able to be picked up by investors, to be able to be used on the ground? But he developed societal readiness levels. And it's specifically with transport. And I just love the concept. Because you can have your kind of Sinclair C5 car, little tiny vehicle, and actually, at the time, it was obviously totally ripped apart. But actually, nowadays, it maybe would have been acceptable. Society wasn't ready for that innovation that he came up with. And so there is something about society being prepared to be on the same journey that the technology is. And we've got to make sure those two align. Very well said. Uh, I know we're out of time now. So uh, I would like, and we can thank our panel, Thomas Aylman, Lord Patrick McLaughlin, Matt Eastwood, and Claire Spooner, if we can thank them in the usual way. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.